indeed. Breathing in and breathing out. I don't know if you've ever done those exercises where you do that. I used to have to do that when I was doing singing and breathe in for five, hold for five, release for five, hold for five, and then go to six and then see how far I could go to control my breath. But as you do it, you realise how little attention you pay to your breath and how little control you actually have over it, most of us anyway. When you do that, what can you feel? Is your breathing shallow or were you able to breathe in deeply? We use our lungs from the moment we're born. So let's have a chat about them. Dr. Mike and Dr. Matt are here for their latest guide to the human body. Evening, gents. Good evening. All right, let's go to breathing. Why do we need to breathe? Well, you know, we all know we need to breathe, but why? What does breathing do for us? So very simply, we know that we need to breathe because we inhale uh, atmospheric air, which has oxygen in it. And that jumps from our lungs into our bloodstream, which transports it to all the tissues and cells of our body, who use it to make energy. And then as a byproduct of making that energy, it produces carbon dioxide, which we need to get rid of. So it throws that back into the blood, which then goes back to the lungs for us to breathe out. So it gives us the oxygen for energy. Now that carbon dioxide that's in our blood is actually, for us, carbon dioxide is an acid. So carbon dioxide in our blood creates acid. And so we need to get rid of that because we don't want to change the acidity of our blood too much. So our blood needs to be at a pH of 7.35 to 7.45, which is really tightly yeah. tightly um, regulated. Neutral. Yeah, basically, basically neutral, but <laughs> neutral. Um, but so... This is important because it highlights that the respiratory system also plays a role in maintaining the pH or the acidity of our bloodstream as well, mm. which is an important point because you, there's a lot of things going on at the moment about people changing their blood pH through diet and through drinks, and it's just not it's not physiologically Doesn't possible. Doesn't lemon help us all do that to to make us all no something no. alkaline? I, I never no. know what they're trying to do. I mean, it gives you some vitamin C. Yeah, well, a bit of vitamin good. C. And hydration, if you have it with water. Yay, but, but it uh, won't change your... And it takes enamel off your teeth. Well, if you think about it... Well, <laughs> that's, that's not, that's not really a pro, true. is it? We, we're going all right there. <laughs> Whatever you ingest, it's going to go to your stomach, and that's got a pH of 1 to Mm -hmm. 3, which is highly acidic. So it doesn't matter how alkaline or acidic or basic of anything you ingest, it's all just going to be Mm -hmm. basically neutralized, by not neutralized, but turned into acid with the acid in the stomach. So it's really tightly regulated. So breathing, one, gives us the oxygen, removes the CO2, and helps in the short term maintain the pH of our blood, which is important. Okay. Uh, question without notice. When we breathe in oxygen, how, how long does it take for the oxygen we've come in to be breathed out? Are we breathing in and then breathing out that same breath or is it going through our system and coming out a minute later? Or So what will know? happen is take that breath in and yep. it's going to go from the atmosphere into our lungs and then from the lungs it jumps across into the bloodstream and binds to haemoglobin of our red blood cells and fully saturates the haemoglobin. Yep. And then this haemoglobin travels around the body and will deliver the oxygen to tissues. Now, if you have a look at a single haemoglobin that's fully saturated with oxygen, mm-hmm. it'll go around the whole body 
and back to the lungs, and it's still 85% saturated with oxygen. Okay. So what you'll find is that it'll take a couple of cycles around the body in order for that oxygen to be delivered to the cells. And then that oxygen, through numerous processes, turn into the carbon dioxide that get breathed out. So mm -hmm. it would be hard to track a single oxygen molecule because it then ultimately gets turned into fuel. Yep. Uh, but it takes you know a, a good while for that oxygen to jump off okay. the hemoglobin. Because I've always thought that I'm taking the breath in and then that same breath. It would it would remain it well some of yep. it would remain. Some there's would a lot of there's there. a lot of dead, oh, yeah. dead space in your lungs, so mm -hmm. it, there's going to be a portion of that breath that will remain in your lungs and not reach the area where you have the gas exchange. I guess you could look at it by I think they do some tests where they I think they use carbon monoxide and they somehow, I think they can label it somehow, and this can test the patency of the, right at the alveoli level, mm -hmm. and people with, say, emphysema, where they have a big destruction of their alveolis, they can determine how much air is actually getting across into their blood. All right. And I think that's done through carbon monoxide rather than carbon dioxide. But that will te test how much kind of dead space you do have in your lungs. Mm. Do most respiratory systems of animals work in the same way as human beings? Well, in the, pr the principle behind it is the same. So you basically need the oxygen. So if we talk about animals, not plants, mm -hmm. um, they generally walk, work off oxygen. And so they need to get oxygen into the bloodstream. And the, the principles behind that is you need to communicate the blood close to the atmosphere. And they usually have a close separation of the blood, of the blood vessels, mm -hmm. to the atmosphere with a, a small little film of um, membrane. That membrane has to be wet to allow the, the gases to pass through. So if we look at certain simple animals, like say worms, they have to be always wet. So if they dry out like an earthworm, they... They're a uh, very sad sight on yeah, your pavement. They <laughs> so they morning, actually die from asphyxiation. Oh really? Is yeah. that what's happened? Oh, yeah. how awful. Because they can't get the, the air into their skin, across their skin, into their body oh. to do the diffusion. Yep. And so then you can say, look at some insects like spiders. Mm -hmm. Spiders are pretty tricky. Some some can like live on the water or partly mm -hmm. in the water. So they can kind of bear hug a big um, air bubble yep. and kind of take it down in their water with them and kind of live off their air bubbles. Just um, I don't want to know about that. And then they can <laughs> live underwater for probably days yep. off that air bubble. Then you've moved to fish. Waiting for you to swim yeah, by. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And leap out and attack. So they can do it that way. And yeah. then you move to fish. Fish obviously use gills, but the gills mm. are, can be either external or internal. And that's kind of like little combs. And they're really rich with blood. And it just, instead of air this time, it requires the, the, the water to wash past it. And mm -hmm. it extracts the oxygen out of the water and can do it at once with it and then it puts it out. But it's much more efficient in extracting the oxygen out of the atmosphere. They take about 80% of the oxygen out of the water. So okay. they're pretty good. Clever. So they have the gills, but some, some animals do have um, bladders to mm -hmm. do it as well. Um, so they can work in many ways. The bladders can be used for buoyancy, mm -hmm. but they can actually also be used um, for respiration as well. And then we kind of go, the animals go onto land, so we have the amphibians, and they generally breathe through their skin, so that's why frogs always have to be m moist, yep. otherwise they can't breathe well. Oh, and gosh. then we go into the land animals, and they kind of invaginate, and they now have the lungs, which is kind of like a reverse gills, in a way. Yeah. So you've got these big sacs that are down in our chest that need a big surface area. Um, so if you say a fish, fish would have mm, maybe 90 squared metres 
in its gills of surface area, whereas the human probably How has... the fish? 20 kilos. So okay. They, they have probably more surface area than humans. So it's 90 square... That's about a tennis court, right? Yeah, two-thirds of a tennis court. So yeah. Whereas a human would be close to a it's tennis court. So if you got your lungs, pull them out... Really? ...flattened it off with a steamroller, it would be about the size of a tennis court yeah. in surface area. And this is important because obviously the greater the surface area, the more likely uh, gas will exchange. Mm. Yeah. And so that's extremely important. So you, if you were to look at the membrane in which the gas needed to go past, Across. it's mm. one fifteenth the thickness of a piece of paper. So it's super how th thin. How thick? One fifteenth. Is that right? Yeah. Is it? Yeah. Well, you, the way yeah, you said that, maybe so. Oh, I never heard that. Well, there's some diseases where, you know, once that's increased, then they have problems breathing. So mm. people oh, have like fluid on their lungs yeah, or they get certain inflammatory diseases. Which thickens that membrane, yeah. which makes it more difficult for the gases to pass over. And if you look at the gases, oxygen and carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide actually dissolves or diffuses across that membrane far easier than oxygen does. Mm. So carbon dioxide can move pretty easily, but oxygen sort of needs a bit of a push behind it. All right. So I'm still back at a whole tennis court. There's a lot stuffed into our bodies, yeah, isn't there? there? Is. When yeah. you think about the yeah. intestines and yeah. how long they are when they're stretched out. At blood vessels. Yeah. Hundreds yeah. of thousands Around the world of, of blood vessels, yeah. It, it's quite amazing. Yeah. It is amazing. Truly. All right. So when what happens to our lungs then when we breathe in extreme environments? Uh, diving underwater, yeah. for example. What's happening there? So if if you think about the atmosphere that we're breathing at sea level, and so we're here in Queensland, so we're at sea level, you, when you take a breath in, that atmosphere has oxygen, nitrogen, mm. carbon dioxide, and a couple of other trace gases. You'll find that about 21% of the atmosphere is oxygen, and 79% mm. is nitrogen, and then the rest is just trace elements, like carbon dioxide and so forth. Yeah. So you take a breath in, and mainly it's oxygen and nitrogen. Uh, when you jump into the water, what you'll find is that, so firstly, let's just jump back out of the water for a second, <laughs> and we think about that atmosphere that's on us right now, so that's uh -huh. one atmosphere. So yep. that's basically, if I were to get a cylinder directly above my head and go up the tens of kilometres above me, you'll find that all of that atmosphere contains, like I said, 21% oxygen and 79% mm. nitrogen. As you go into the water... Every 10 metres that you go deeper into the water, you add another atmosphere's worth of pressure. So if you're down 10 metres, you've got the one atmosphere of the uh, external atmosphere outside of the water and then the one atmosphere of the water above you. So you the go weight down, of the water. The weight of the mm. water. So that's two atmospheres at 10 metres. So you go down to 20 metres, that's three atmospheres, 30 metres, four, and so forth. What that means is... it. Push, uh, puts a lot of pressure on the gases. And so the gases start to condense and they start to be able to be compacted into smaller volumes. And what that means is if you start outside the water, take a breath in and maybe breathe in about a litre worth of air mm. and then decided to start diving down and down and down, as the atmosphere increases, it starts to condense all that air in the lungs. If you were to dive down to the deepest depth that we can dive, which is about 300 metres, what you'll find is that if you breathe in one litre of air at the top, you'll have 32 millilitres of air in your lungs. That's how much it's squished down. Yeah. Now, 
of the opposite of that, if you were to take your, you're wearing scuba gear, you take a breath out of your tank and you breathe in a litre worth of air from the scuba gear, mm -hmm. and then you were to hold your breath and swim back up, ascend that 300 metres without breathing out, your lungs would expand to 32 litres. Now, your lungs can only hold about six litres, so they would obviously pop if you didn't breathe out. Yep. So that's why it's really important when scuba diving that you slowly exhale that air so that your lungs obviously don't pop as you start to ascend. Now, that's a couple of other things because I said there's a lot of nitrogen yeah. in the gas that we breathe. And now at sea level, we probably uh, dissolve into our bloodstream, into our tissues about a litre of nitrogen. It doesn't do anything. So it's inert. Mm. doesn't play around. But as you start going deeper and deeper into the water, you start to dissolve more and more nitrogen. And what happens is as it starts to dissolve, it gets into the tissues, gets into the fluid, gets into the blood, gets into the fatty tissues specifically. And if you start to ascend too quickly, what happens is just like when you go to a supermarket and you grab a bottle of soda water, for example, mm -hmm. and you feel that bottle, it's, it's sealed and it's really hard it's really tight it's highly pressurized yep. and you can't actually see any of the bubbles inside of that liquid because of the high pressure in that bottle but as soon as you open the lid you start to depressurize and yeah. so what happens is the bubbles start to produce and the bubbles start to rise to the top same thing happens when you start to ascend from deep diving or the nitrogen that's been forcefully dissolved inside your blood as you start to ascend it forms bubbles and these bubbles start to float through the system they go up to your brain they can block blood vessels they can go to the joints of your body and this is called the bends and so that's why mm. you need to ascend very slowly sometimes if you deep dive for an hour it takes about three hours to what's called decompress as you start to ascend back up so you don't get the bends because it can kill you yeah well and obviously that's why they take such care with how much Air they've got that's right in the tank yeah and plus that nitrogen wow. can make you drunk the narcosis that you can mm. get so i think they say for every 15 meters that you descend it's like having another martini because the types of mm. effects that the nitrogen has when dissolved in your blood is like you're slowly getting drunk yeah and so as you start to go down you first become jovial and happy and carefree and then you get a little bit drowsy and then you start to lose muscle coordination mm. and then you black out Become sleazy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Not much good for you at the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> so, so how is it then that uh, that uh, creatures in the ocean don't suffer from this? Is it is it just the different design of of their bodies completely? That yeah, well, it's probably different different aspects. I mean, going back to the fish, I guess them being in the ocean, mm. yep. um, they do have that bladder. And so certain animals that live on the surface, they don't have such a big problem. And the ones that live right at the bottom, say like flounder or flathead, they mm. don't have such a big problem because they just stay that, that depth. But the animals that move up and down, basically what they can do is they can, they've got that bladder, which is kind of like a, a blind pouch that's sitting around their stomach. And mm. they can start putting into that certain gases. So at certain levels, the concentration may be similar to air, but as they get deeper and deeper, they can change the concentration into, say, um, just oxygen, pure oxygen. Okay. And whether that's to Clever. change the buoyancy to make it easy for the fish to swim at that level, because then mm. their tissue is similar to the um, density of water, but if to change the, um, the bladder to be more um, full of air, that can make it easier for them to swim or float at that mm. level. What about then high, um, you know, higher environments? If we go, go to the top of Everest, mm. uh, there are some people who do it without oxygen. Yeah. Uh, they're very 
some of them are the ones who get back, very clever. Yeah. Uh, but uh, most of us have to use oxygen if we're going to do it. Yeah. Why? What's happening at, at high altitude? So as you go in the opposite direction, we're going up now, uh, the gases start to dissipate. So obviously we've got gravity working on us all the time, which is mm. sucking things down towards the earth and that sucks the gas particles down towards the earth. So as you yep. start to ascend up a mountain, you've got less and less gas particles above you or around you. Mm. And so I think it's about every five and a half thousand meters you go upwards, you halve the amount of gas that's around you. So uh, basically if we were to go to base camp of Everest, that's about five mm. and a half thousand meters, you've got half the amount of oxygen around you. And so this is actually sufficient enough to start making you lightheaded, uh, start making you feel nauseous and unwell, mm. uh, muscle weakness, fatigue and so forth. And so your body does a couple of things physiologically to adapt to these environments. And so usually people, when they go to climb Mount Everest, they don't just fly there and then it's just ascend no. straight up. So they'll go to base camp and they'll acclimatize. And so a couple of things happen when you acclimatize. Uh, first thing is that when you get there, you will be breathing reduced amounts of oxygen. And so mm. what happens is your body knows this. It's not getting enough oxygen to the tissues. And so this is called hypoxia, not mm. enough oxygen. And it stimulates your body, reduced levels of oxygen stimulate your body to start breathing more. So mm -hmm. you start hyperventilating. So you start breathing a little bit more. But a, a problem with hyperventilating is when you do that, you breathe out all of the carbon dioxide in your body. Now, this is actually not a good thing. So I said carbon dioxide in your body is bad because it's an acid, so we want to breathe it out. But we actually don't want to breathe all of it out because if we do, again, it releases too much acid mm. and the pH of our blood starts to go off a little bit. So in actual fact, the stimulus for us to take the next breath isn't a decrease in oxygen levels. It's actually an increase in carbon dioxide levels in our body. That's what tells us to take the next breath. So if you hyperventilate, you breathe off all the CO2 and it actually is an inhibitory stimulus to not, mm. so not to breathe. So you've got this drop in oxygen telling you to breathe more and this drop in carbon dioxide, which is telling you to breathe less. And in a way they can cancel themselves out and you d just only breathe a little bit more in these very short time frames when you first get to these low oxygen levels, which isn't a good thing. So you start to suffer a little bit. But as mm. you start to acclimatize and spend days to weeks, your kidneys start to help you out a little bit. So what the kidneys do is it starts to increase more acid. So you're breathing off the CO2, which means you're breathing off the acid, but the kidneys help to keep some of that acid in your body. Mm. So the acid starts to get back to normal levels, which means now you've got that drop in oxygen stimulus to tell you to keep breathing. So yep. more breathing, more breathing. And that's one of the changes that happens is you hyperventilate. Mm. This is actually one reason why if somebody hyperventilates, they give you a paper bag, for example, because if you hyperventilate and you breathe off all your carbon dioxide, you've lost your stimulus to take the next breath and you pass out. And so they give you a brown paper bag to breathe out the carbon dioxide into and then breathe it back in. So mm. you keep normal carbon dioxide levels. It's also another reason why kids tend to drown in backyard swimming pools because they want to do a hold your breath competition. So they hyperventilate, then they go underwater. And what happens is they've got huge amounts of oxygen in their body now, but low amounts of carbon dioxide, which means their stimulus to breathe and stimulus to put their head above the water to take the next breath has disappeared because the carbon dioxide is gone. Mm. And so what happens is their oxygen levels slowly start to drop and then they pass out. 
Ah, and so it's yep. so carbon dioxide main stimulus to take the next breath, and then the next stimulus is a drop in oxygen. And so anyway, the, the changes that happen in the kidneys start to help you. This kidneys start to hold on to some of that acid, so that you start to have a normal blood pH, start to breathe. Um, uh, faster, harder, and then your kidneys produce something called EPO, which is mm -hmm. erythropoietin, and this is what some athletes used for blood doping. Yeah, because EPO produced by the kidneys increases the amount of red blood cells, more red blood cells, more, more oxygen. oxygen. This is great because you can transport that oxygen around, but if you take too much of it, it makes your blood thick because it's just more stuff in your blood, mm -hmm. more red blood cells, hemoglobin. Hemoglobin. That's called sludging. And so that's not a good thing because it can lead to strokes, it can mm. lead to blood clots, it can lead to a whole bunch of things. Right. Your body starts to make more blood vessels so that you can transport more oxygen. Um, so many different things happen when you acclimatise. Yeah. I remember um, talking with Andrew Locke, the, um, the mountaineer who's conquered the, you know, all the over 4,000 metre um, mm. mountains, and he actually called me from uh, the last one he had to do. Wow. And it wasn't Everest or K2. It was one of the ones sort of in between there. And, uh, well, they're the first two and then, like, whatever it was anyhow. And, yeah, he was on a sat phone and he said he would, but I kind of didn't think he would because I thought you'd get up there mm. and, you know, a whole heap. Anyhow, he was straddled over the top of the mountain and he'd, I think he'd done that without oxygen. Wow. And it was just this, oh, yeah, oh, I'm here. And uh, he was breathing almost after every word. I'm like... Where are you? I'm straddled over the top of the mountain. I'm like, get off the mountain. <laughs> Don't be talking oh, to me. It's exhausting. But, yeah, it was. Yeah. But he, of course, had been doing this for a very long time and knew exactly what he was doing. Yes. Mm -hmm. So it was, you know, me, no, don't talk. But him, yeah, it was. So he's acclimatised himself. Yeah, absolutely. But I remember hearing another story as well from uh, a group of guys from Brisbane who uh, went, they were going to Everest, but the earthquake happened, that really terrible earthquake happened. Oh, yeah. And, uh, but, and it was a great story about them deciding, yes, let's not go to base camp, which was a good decision in the end. But uh, one of their party uh, got a, a type of blood poisoning, I think. I'm trying to think what the um, the technical term for it is. But he only found out, because there were no symptoms, mm. that because he went to a talk that um, one of the doctors was giving at a, a village that they'd stopped at, and they did a, oh, you know, who wants to see if their blood levels are at the right, you know, yeah. right amount? And he went, oh, yeah, okay. So he got up there, thing. Yeah, uh, yeah, we need to call you a uh, an ambulance. We need to call you a helicopter. We need to get you flown out of here right now. Yeah. And if it had been a couple of hours more, he'd be dead. Wow. Yeah, yeah. you can get mountain sickness. And mm -hmm. so you can get acute or chronic mountain sickness. And one of the things that can happen is you can get cerebral edema, which is mm. basically fluid on the, on the brain. Um, and this happens because when oxygen levels in your body go down, it actually tells all the blood vessels in your body to dilate and get larger. Mm -hmm. And that includes the blood vessels in your brain. So if they all start to dilate, you get more blood going to your brain and it increases the pressure and increases the fluid exuding or coming out of mm. the of but the blood But you can't feel it, obviously. Well, you start to maybe get until it's too late. And, yeah. I remember yeah. I went from, uh, I was in South America, we went from Chile, which was sea level, to La Paz, which was close to 4,000 in one day on a bus. Mm. Yeah. And my friend, you know, I was 18, I didn't even think about it at the time. Yeah. Um, my friend got really sick and he was quite happy to stay at the border because he w couldn't get across the border. So he said, just leave me here. And he had <laughs> yeah. headaches and he was really sick and 
he was out of it. So mm. it, it's it, not, it, not it does play with you. When you're not used to it, like Australia doesn't have those sort of variances in no. height. I mean, if you want to go no. scuba diving, you'll find the, the other variants. Yeah. But, yeah, and we're not used to thinking about about that variability. No, well, we only start to experience the effects after around about four or 5,000 metres. And mm. what's Kosciuszko? Three thousand meters yeah. something like that so you know there's nothing in australia really that will do test it for us. Yeah, that will <laughs> test us that's right so when we're in utero what are our lungs doing then are they are they working or do they only work once we take that first breath of oxygen yeah so um basically our lungs they develop out of our gut so mm -hmm. like you said earlier we have all these weird things that are wrapped up inside us so when we're a baby we're kind of like a big barrel Mm -hmm. and we have a big tube that runs right through the middle, and that's our gut tube, which is from the mouth to the anus. And that does all these big loops and turns. But coming off the... So that, that gut tube is broken into three parts, the foregut, the midgut, and the hindgut. Now, the foregut it has these certain herniations that pop out. Like we, the, the liver comes out of one side, the pancreas comes out of another. But right at the top end, we have our lungs pop out, and that pops out kind of just in front of our esophagus mm -hmm. and as that starts to grow out into our chest it, it it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and gets kind of like a tree in backwards so the trachea which is our air pipe that's like the trunk and as we go out into smaller branches um, we go out to our little alveolars which do all the, the the breathing that we spoke about earlier now when we're in utero that's just filled with amniotic fluid which is a combination of probably urine from mm -hmm. the, peeing out amongst other things and so that's probably moving in and out of the lungs uh, as we're getting mm. bigger and that probably um we absorb that in our lungs but it doesn't really do a great deal now it's yep. thought that you know babies will have hiccups and so mm -hmm. and that helps to prepare the lungs for um, breathing but nothing's really occurring for respiration purposes while we're in utero mm -hmm. because we get no oxygen from our mother through the placenta yeah but once we're born this probably the squeezing out of the um the birth canal is probably forcing a lot of the fluid out mm -hmm. and then once we take our first breath the, the lungs kind of inflate and then all that fluid what's remained will get absorbed through the alveolis and then hopefully it clears yeah some babies that are born premature they are born without a a, a type of chemical called surfactant and that's produced probably at about 30 weeks onwards. And so any premature babies before 30 weeks don't produce that chemical. Mm. And that will cause the lungs to collapse in. And so um, back in the day, that was a big cause of death to premature babies. But now we have certain sprays and chemicals that we can put down in the lungs and that keeps the lungs open. Yeah. Good. But, but the, yeah. New, the, the newborn has a very weak thorax. And so it's kind of like a plastic bottle. So if you imagine if you sucked on a plastic bottle, it kind of crinkled in, yeah. crushing. Um, that's what a, a baby's newborn's chest is like. So it, it just has enough strength in its muscles to just to keep the chest open and all its breathing is done by its diaphragm. So if you watch a baby breathe, it's mm. kind of just moving its stomach yeah, in its and out. Yeah, its tummy, yeah. Not its chest. It can't, hasn't got the strength to expand the chest out. Mm. Yeah. So hiccups, what are they? Basically just a... Um, uh, a type of spasm in our in our diaphragm. Mm -hmm. So our diaphragm is our main breathing muscle, and it you know how you get kind of spasms in your muscles, in your eyelids or your fingers yeah. and stuff. It's the same kind of thing. Um, there's thought to be a number of causes. Now the one of the main nerves that goes to the um, to the diaphragm is called the phrenic nerve. It comes from your 
neck, yep. and it kind of can get mixed up with your vagus nerve, which is another big mus- big nerve from your neck. That's the one that when Matt vomits, he stimulates and passes out. Oh, from. that's right. <laughs> yeah. yes. So it goes to your lungs, it goes to your heart. <laughs> the freaky story. How could I have forgotten? <laughs> it goes to your gut. And so when you get hiccups, so some people get it from... Um, Overeating, some get from um, eating chili. Yep. Some people just get it from when they're tired and so forth. And mm. so a lot of the remedies is around trying to stimulate the vagus nerve. So mm. people scare other people, they'll drink upside down or drink cold water or yep. push their eyeballs hard. Really? That's thought to Don't do that. Never heard. But the only true, this is apparently the only only true thing that works, but this Mm -hmm. is quite invasive. Um, This was a study done in America where a a man, I think he had uh, hiccups for 72 hours. And so the physician said- That'd be a nightmare. Yeah. The physician said, well, the record is 68 years, nonstop for 68 years. Surely somebody should have operated between, you know, a couple of years down the track. So anyway, Enough. back to this guy with 72 hours worth. He, the, the doctor's like, well, I know how to stimulate the vagus nerve. So what he, what he did was basically put his finger up his bum and just stimulated his rectum. And because the, the vagus, the vagus, <laughs> Kelly's looking at me funny. <laughs> it's not where I thought the story was going. So the, the rectum is. One of those nights. <laughs> it's innovated by the vagus nerve. So by doing that, it got rid of the hiccups. So the length, the length you go to. There's one for your next party, people. Yeah, yeah. So either hold just your breath or... Just make sure you use a glove. <laughs> As it be safe if you're going to do these things. Well, Dr. Mike and Dr. Matt, thank you so much for <laughs> that discussion. You. We'll keep talking about the lungs next week and maybe talk about some of the diseases and the things that can go wrong with them and how we fix them. Sounds good. Thank you. Thanks.